0: Dublin. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing.
1: Hello. Hello, could I please speak with Fatima Butto?
0: Yes. Hi, Paul. Hello,
1: Fatima. This is Paul, as you said, and I'm so glad that you're on this call and that you're part of the quarantine tapes. Now I'm going to ask you a question which is always difficult for you to answer, but in a way you have a solution <laughs> yeah. you have a solution to that question. Where do I find you? And I know it's—I know it's a complicated question, and I know yes. that in some ways you'll be able to answer it, perhaps, in ways that some of the listeners may not suspect.
0: Yeah, yes, I always think of myself really as a, a rootless person, mm. as, as much as I love certain places. Mm. So it's never, never an easy question to answer. But you find me today actually looking for poetry sitting at a desk in front of a computer um, ahead of our call.
1: Looking for poetry. So is is poetry what is keeping you company these days, these difficult days we find ourselves in?
0: Well, poetry is always a comfort. It's it's a balm and it's been a present for as long as I can remember, but yes, in these weird times, there's something timeless about poetry which which I find soothing, as opposed to looking at the news or trying to keep up with whatever disaster has unfolded today
1: let's get back to poetry in in a moment but for for mm-hmm. our listeners fatima i would I would love you to give us a sense of your family's story. It's such an extraordinary story and the ways in which Mm -hmm. it is intertwined with, really with the history, the deep history of Pakistan.
0: Well, my grandfather, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, was Pakistan's first democratically elected head of state um, in the 1970s. And he and his family come from a province in the south of the country called Sindh, and though they were all very big readers and writers and students of, of many things, but uh, including the law and history and philosophy, my grandfather was a, a politician, and he presided over this country that he, he loved, and it was a time where Pakistan was just 30 years young, really. was very soon after our independence and so many things were possible so many things were hopeful about the promise of Pakistan but of course these were difficult times the world was edging closer and closer to Division, um, 1979, which is a year that, that means a lot of horror and a lot of sadness for many people came, yeah. and and brought all those things to to Pakistan. My grandfather's government was overthrown by a CIA-backed military coup in 1977, and he was assassinated in in 1979, and his his family, his wife, and all his children. Uh, remained connected to to his his work and his dreams and and his politics and they all were political they all served their country and and they were most of them also assassinated
1: and then there's uh, the story of your father
0: mm. yes my father was was the eldest son and after his father was killed he and his brother went into, into exile. And I was born in exile. I was born in, in Afghanistan, yeah. in Kabul. And my father spent 16 years in exile after Afghanistan. I lived in, in Syria, in Damascus. And I was 11 years old before we would return fully, um, permanently to Pakistan. And my father returned, he fought an election, he won a, a seat in Parliament. And he was killed in nineteen ninety six, um, in September, on the twentieth of September when I was fourteen years old.
1: Reading that and, and reading reading how 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 that assassination of your own father was mm. I mean so I mean it's it's no wonder, I mean, Fatima, no wonder that the notion, even my notion of asking you where you are, the notion of of home <laughs> mm-hmm. is complex for you. And it, it reminds me of, of a line that we've used very much on the, these quarantine tapes, which is a wonderful line by Pascal, where he says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone.
0: Oh, that's that's beautiful. Yes, yes, the idea of how does that resonate for you?
1: Is, how does that resonate oh, it, for you?
0: It it resonates, it certainly resonates. The the life I had growing up in exile was quite quiet and it it to me was very happy. It was um, a beautiful time. But I know that it, it it certainly wasn't that for my father. My father was was very homesick and was not happy really to be in exile and in, in in a room sitting quietly and so i understand both i understand the need to push against right. the wall right but but i i do i do love and i'm grateful for the chance to have boundaries up when when i need them too
1: You you recently posted something that I found quite extraordinary about two weeks ago. You wrote, the connection between American racism and imperialism can never be stated enough. These Mm. are tactics U.S. forces perfected abroad over decades in afghanistan iraq pakistan the dirty wars vietnam and more never be silent they will always bring them home help me understand what you meant
0: well i think anyone that has lived in a country or that knows a country that has suffered the the handprint of america knows that there is a there's a big gulf between the promise of America and mm. its practice. Mm. And, and the promise is, of course, beautiful, a place of, of free expression, of diversity, of dissent and debate. These are all the reasons why, why we watch America, why we're curious of it, why we wonder about it. But, but American power out in the world never seems to abide by any of those promises, in fact. It is imperial, it is rough, it is brutal. And, and, and it has been for, for many years and it, it, it hides under the cover of its sophistication in many ways. So, you know, if we're talking about Iraq, I mean, it's, what is it, 37 million people were displaced by, by America's recent war. You know, the, the bombing of Laos meant that something atrocious like one in 10 people were affected in the country. Um, you, you know, if we talk about Pakistan, we know that the, the drone wars, um, were really a illegal war. You know, these are not wars that were given sanction. These are wars where a plane flew under cover of clouds and indiscriminately killed. It, it bombed wedding parties. It bombed people traveling on, on long stretches of highway. Those people had no right to a fair trial. They had no right to be questioned. Um, they were just uh, assassinated. So, anyone who, who has seen what America does out in the world cannot be surprised by the fact that police vans in Portland are driving through neighborhoods right. and in unmarked vehicles and throwing young people into the back. You know, Anyone who, who has watched American troops. Um, in countries that they are occupying and invading, cannot be surprised that that there is a certain kind of delight that that the police are taking now in 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 beating people with batons and in arresting peaceful protesters did
1: you say delight?
0: I think there is a delight yes right. i mean I, I i was a student in in New York I was an undergrad when nine eleven happened and and when the when the war um the war against Iraq started, and I remember going to one of those protests, you know, the anti-war protests. And I, I was with a professor of mine, a professor at at, at Columbia University, who was Iranian, Hamid Dabashi, And I remember he was with a bunch of us students, and I remember he told us that he had been on the streets in in Tehran when when the revolution was unfolding. And and I'll never forget. He said, you know, in, in seventy nine, in those days when they beat us, the police they we could see they didn't want to; they were following orders. They had to, but he said, "Here, they look—they <laughs> look positively excited to do it." And um, and I think that's unfortunately. I think you know, we, what have we seen, Paul, in in just this weird period of lockdown? Mm. The police brutality. How many people are they going to kill and, and apologize and do thoughts and prayer? I mean, it, it can only be a kind of delight in violence that allows it to continue this way.
1: The apologize, I think, really uh, doesn't seem to come too often. But you, 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 you wrote something that that strikes me so strongly that you said something about President Obama that I would like mm-hmm. you. I would like you to further unpack. You said. It was, I think, 72 hours within him entering the White House that he ordered his first drone strike against Pakistan. President Obama was a deeply yeah. unpopular figure in Pakistan because people expected him somehow, magically, to turn the course of the relationship. And of course, and this is what I, I found so interesting, Fatima. Yeah. And of course, of course he couldn't. And then you say yeah. he didn't. But I wonder... Why do you say he couldn't? If a president can't change this state of affairs, who or what can?
0: Well, I think, unfortunately, um, presidents can't do that. I don't think they're powerful enough. I think I mean, only people can, can change structures. I mean, the people, collectively. <laughs> but Obama, you know, came after eight years of George W. Bush, eight years of war and renditions and Abu Ghraib and all the humiliation um, of those wars and, and those images. And Obama represented something different. And, and I, you know, we all believed him. I think we, we needed to believe him and we wanted to believe him because he was a hopeful figure. But I don't think Obama, as hopeful as he was, could change the structures of American power. And it may have been unfair that we expected him to, but on the other hand, as as you said, it was 72 hours that he ordered his first drone strike. President Obama, in his first term, ordered more drone strikes than George Bush, I believe, ordered in both his terms. The drone wars were really amped up under Obama. And... And rather than representing a break in American power, he was just a, con- a continuation of it. And we, I,
1: I think what you said before is is so accurate in my view, which is we are naive when we yeah. look at what's happening, say, in Portland and yeah. are surprised. <laughs>
0: Well, I do think that the one the one important thing I really think President Trump has done is he's removed the sheen of American power. The things that the rest of us living outside America are under, always understood about America now seems apparent to people living in America. Um, the fact that this is a this is a, a, a set of a set of of institutions and representatives. Who will always push forth, who will always defend the structure, who will always keep the machine running as it must, even in the face of pain, in the face of people's pain and but there is a big there is a big divide between what people say and and certainly what they do once yes. they have control of yes. that machine.
1: Yes, certainly a, a big divide as you say. You've spent a great deal of time, Fatima, thinking about and researching radicalization and in your superb new novel The Runaways it's it's central. What what are yeah. the, what are the common factors that led to it?
0: Well, with The Runaways I started really thinking about this for the, uh, as a novel because it had been by that point, by the time I started writing The Runaways, about, well, I don't know, years, really, almost 15 years of the war on terror. And if you happened to be Muslim, if you happen to be from any of these countries that had, had come under sus- suspicion, then you had been humiliated. You had been isolated. You felt alienated. And, and you felt really wounded by always having to see your people, your countries, things you know and love, distorted in the the ugliest of ways, always reduced, you know, radicalism was always presented as a natural byproduct of of religion, of Islam in particular. And to those of us who, who even if I'm not practicing Muslims, but who live amongst Muslims, it always seemed perfectly obvious that it had nothing to do with religion, radicalism. But that actually radicalism is born out of anger. It's born out of fear. It's born out of those wounds, out of those hundreds and hundreds of humiliations that people endure every single day. And I I was tired of that narrative and I just didn't want to be quiet in the face of it anymore. I wanted to look at really the, the, the real dangers. And I think if, if we imagine that any young person who feels that he may not have a place in his society can be weaponized in this way, then I think we're in a lot more trouble than if we think it's his religion that forces him to radicalism.
1: Now, now, uh, Fatima, that we, we're living through a time when people are spending much more time much more of their days alone on the internet. Should we expect to see? Do you think new waves of radicalization?
0: I think we're already seeing it. I think just to watch America is to watch a new wave of radicals. Yes. Those, 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 you know—neo Nazis. Those seventeen-year-old boys with with uh, weapons of of death, of AR-15s and AK-47s, walking in American cities. I think those are the new radicals. And and yet the the discussion about them is so different, isn't it? You know, the 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 young man who who stood on the streets of Kenosha just firing at protesters was not called a terrorist by the press. You know, he was not called um, you know a ticking time bomb. He was you know they always talked about in this really wonderful way they are allowed to retain their innocence for so long he was white he was white and so we're told oh well you know he really wanted to be a policeman you know he had all these dreams you know he was part of this neighbourhood group that tried to watch over their community Uh, it's just it's like two languages the way that white radicals these very intolerant um, hateful creatures are, are, are spoken about and brown radicals are spoken about. You know, there's, um, there's just another language that's used for them.
1: You've, you've said about uh, Pakistanis and many other populations, we are not allowed our innocence the same way the West is. Mm-hmm. I found that very compelling. What did you mean?
0: Well, I mean that in the same way that these other um, characters are always explained or there's always a pause between their acts of violence and any condemnation, for us to reflect about their lives, their childhood, their parents, their upbringing, and and that's an innocence that they're afforded. That um, brown people, black people, just are not. We are automatically criminalized. We're automatically condemned. Um, the judge, jury, you know, an executioner are brought out immediately. But no one ever says, for example, of um the pulse nightclub shooter you know i wonder what happened with his parents you know what did he want to be when he grew up (laughs) (laughs) and they and they did that with the Christchurch killer you know the man uh, uh, who walked into the the two mosques and and shot 50 people point blank he's always described as you know this angelic baby you know we see lots of pictures of him as a young boy they tell us about his travels. Oh, and by the way, it was his travels to Asia that radicalized him. So it's our fault anyway, whichever way you look at it. Um, you know, we get to hear about his, you know, he was a gym instructor. You know, he he struggled. And and actually what I'd like is I think, I do think it's important to, to try and understand people's motivations. Right. Certainly not, not, not to excuse them, but I think it's important to look at what happens to the lives of men that turns them into killers? I of think course, that is important. Of course,
1: and as a novelist, you you would be very interested with that backstory.
0: Absolutely, but but I but I I think it has to be done for everyone. That's I mean, right. I I'm unsatisfied if it's only done for one group of people and 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 not another. And you know, it, it it doesn't seem to bother anyone in in the press or in the media or on TV because I I don't see any of that changing. It just gets more divisive
1: the language. As an epigram to um, to the Runaways, you have this beautiful poem by Mahmoud Dawish, yes. which mm-hmm. I will which I will read, and maybe you can help us understand why it's there and what it means for you. And I was lost in Rita for two years and for two years she slept on my arm and we made promises over the most beautiful of cups and we burned in the wine on our lips and we were born again.
0: That's one of my favourite poems and it's a beautiful poem Mm. and I chose it, I chose it. I've always loved Mahmoud Darwish and I find him an astonishing poet for his beauty and and for his politics, for his resisting uh, of power and, and force. But I, I was reading that when I was writing The Runaways. I, I had it written down in a notebook mm. that was on my desk and I would just look at it every now and again. And I, I used it for the book because because the promise of rebirth um, was so moving to me. Mm. It, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a poem which, which has a, a rifle in it. Um, and and I was thinking of rifle, I was thinking of, of war when I was writing The Runaways. But it also occurred to me that a lot of the seduction of radicalism, a lot of the seduction of, of really burning your life, of, of setting ablaze everything you've ever known and, and, and choosing another existence is a rebirth. And I felt very sad for the people I wrote about in The Runaways. That their rebirth had to be violent. That that there was no other avenue for their rebirth. That there was no other way for them to be born anew, except through through the choices they made, which were terrible choices.
1: When we began this conversation, you may remember I asked you mm-hmm. where you were, mm-hmm. and um, we quickly spoke about the notion of home and maybe, like Cilant says, home. Uh, my homeland is language. And um, you wrote to me recently that Lorca has been very much on your mind. Another very, mm. a very, another very great poet. And I'm wondering, mm. is there is there a poem of him, of his in particular, that speaks to you?
0: Yes, yes, there is. Yes, I
1: I like that. Yes,
0: I the, he's, there is something about this poem that does it takes my breath away. Certain certain lines in it. And I find them, I mean, I, I want to cry when I read some of these lines of this poem, but it's, it's absent soul, can or the read, soul is can gone. You, I mean, it's, can
1: you read it for <laughs> us if you have it?
0: Yes, yes, I will. So I think, I think it's commonly called absent soul, but yeah, yes. Alma ausente. Alma ausente. Ausente, exactly. The bull does not know you, nor the fig tree, nor the horses, nor the ants in your own house. The child and the afternoon do not know you, because you have died forever. The shoulder of the stone does not know you, nor the black silk where you are shuttered. Your silent memory does not know you, because you have died forever. The autumn will come with small white snails, misty grapes, and clustered hills, but no one will look into your eyes, because you have died forever. Because you have died forever, like all the dead of the earth, like all the dead who are forgotten, in a heap of lifeless dogs. Nobody knows you, no, but I sing to you. For posterity I sing of your profile and grace, of the maturity of your understanding, of your appetite for death and the taste of its mouth, of the sadness of your once valiant gaiety. It will be a long time, if ever, before there is born an Andalusian so true, so rich in adventure, a thing of his elegance with words that tremble. And I remember a sad breeze through the olive tree.
1: Before reading it, Fatima, you said mm. there's certain lines that, well, you said make you cry, mm. but certain lines that, that give you perhaps what Nabokov called a tingle in your spine. Yeah. What are those lines in this poem, if if there are those lines?
0: There are. I mean, they're even more moving in, in Spanish, I think, but it's, it's the lines that are No te conoce nadie No, pero yo te canto Nobody knows you No, but I, I sing of you And it, to me those lines are so moving because they speak to I think the sorrow of the, of the world we live in which is overwhelming and the sadness is really in, in the invisible You know, the things that we see on Twitter and the things that we send our friends and emails and write to each other about those are the things that are seen but the unseen uh, I'm always so shaken by by what, what we don't talk about by the things that, that don't catch any attention and I think in a way it's really the role of, of a writer is, is to find the people that nobody knows and for while you're writing and while you're observing and while you're, while you're thinking to speak directly and truly to those people
1: the people of centre
0: yes I think the center is overrated. I mean, you know, it's any, anywhere you look in, it, in any center, it's, it's going to be a kind of crude, obvious thing that occupies the center. Mm. But but the periphery, you know, the shadows are, are always going to be more interesting. It's the, it, it's the things people want to hide. It's the things people are too afraid to talk about. And that's always going to be more interesting than the things they celebrate, I think.
1: Fatima, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, wherever you may be. And
0: <laughs> the pleasure is all mine.
1: And um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Stay safe. And I hope someday we we meet in person. I would really enjoy that tremendously. But for now, I really express to you my gratitude.
0: Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I so enjoyed it. Be
1: well. Stay safe.
0: You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.